I'm Laura Vinroot Poole. For over 20 years, I've owned Capital, an internationally recognized specialty store in Charlotte, North Carolina. On this podcast, we unlock the stories of people's lives through the stories of what they wore. These aren't conversations about fashion. These are conversations about people. Everybody wants to know her name. For this special episode of What We Wore, I'm so honored to introduce writer, horticulturalist, collector, philanthropist, and true visionary Umberto Pasti to you. Umberto spoke at Charlotte's beloved Wing Haven and shared his experience creating Rahuna, his renowned garden in Morocco. I see beautiful carpets, beautiful faces, beautiful lanterns. I feel home. I feel very cozy. And... Uh, Yes, I have this little garden in Ruhuna, that's it, there's a book, you will see the garden in the book. I, I slept under a fig tree when I first arrived there. I woke up and I was convinced that myself, that I had become a garden. I mean, this was earth, those were trees, uh, these were flowers, and, and my body was this place, and this place was a garden. So I had to realize the garden that I had become. Luckily, it was a very dry place, so I had to work a lot for becoming this garden and to transform this place into a, the garden that this place had been. I don't know when, if in Phoenician times, in Roman times, there was absolutely nothing. There were two fig trees, one olive trees, and two small eucalyptuses, but I had to remake this garden which had existed there God knows when. I have managed. I nearly killed myself because it was very, very, very hard task. We had to transport almost everything by mule. First thing, the earth. Second thing, all the trees. I started 21 years ago. So it, now we are, I think, 99. No, 99, 99. Exactly 21 years ago, yeah. Where, you buy, where did you buy the trees? I never, I never bought any tree because uh, the trees were all, but I found them by the road. They were, they were just taken away. No, then I, I, I bought lots of small plants, but the big trees of the structures, they all are olive trees or fig trees, pomegranates. They, they were, they were um, there, lying, lying by the road. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, as I told you, I, I, I slept, <laughs> okay? And when I woke up, I didn't design anything. I, didn't, I just knew how it was, because it was as to know where my head and where my feet are. It was exactly like my body. And the strange thing is that one time I went, to, I went from Tangier to Marrakesh on a private airplane, so we were flying quite, quite low, and I could see the garden from up above very clearly and there's the symmetry of the garden is absolutely unbelievable there's not a difference I mean there's an exedra and 25 meters here 25 meters here and two terraces in front and it's mad because it's just uh, accident I don't know it has happened like this 
Umberto was charmed that Elizabeth and Eddie Clarkson, the original owners of Winghaven, loved to live among the animals as much as he and his partner Stefan do as well. Here's one of my favorite stories about his falcon family in his bedroom. Anyway, no, I was very moved because when the charming people who did this place, I, I saw they had a very nice relationship with birds. And what I want to tell you is that in our bedroom, which is under the, under the roof, you see, the, the house looks Italian, but in fact, it's an absolutely northern Morocco Berber house because in Runa, nothing was done by anybody not from the village. So everything was done by people from the village, old masons, old people from the village. And they built the house this way, which is a Jbala house. They're called Jbala is the name of the Berbers of the Western Reef, is where we are living. And in the roof, our bedroom is on the roof, and we have a family of Eleonora's falcon who live in our room. And Eleonora's falcon are the most beautiful, clever falcons. Uh, it's, it's a very um, Western colony of them, because usually they live in Sardinia, but some of them live on the Atlantic coast of Morocco. They're quite rare. And they come there every spring they arrive. And uh, in the last years, they, they always make two children. And two years ago, they had a son who was a completely idiot. And <laughs> instead of learning how to fly properly, he just wanted to go up, 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 up. And the father and the mother were horrified and trying to tell him, come down and go the other way. He couldn't learn. And, and the disappointment, the mother was very brave. She was coming into the room. And, and when we have visitors, uh, can you imagine what what's a family, how, how a family of falcons um, fetch his children with what? And you can imagine the smell in our room of the people visiting and say, oh, that's your room, how lovely. I mean, um, peculiar. What happens in here? You say, well, it's a family of falcon. Anyway, so I imagine also the people from this garden had the same sort of problem because animals, to live with animals can be complicated from time to time. I also loved hearing about how Umberto's garden arose from nothing but dirt and stones, and now his beloved flora and fauna are abundant. Nothing. There was absolutely nothing, only stones. And, um, and so I started, and one of the first things I planted is Dietes grandiflora, which is the South African iris, who must be very, very happy out here in Charlotte. I don't know if you ever tried. No? I'll get you some, I'll send you some seeds. It's extraordinary. Because when it flowers, they flower all together. They're very short flowering. It, they last for one day, but it's like if one million of butterflies is in the garden. I mean, they're extraordinary. This Rosa Mutabilis, this is our, yeah, next. This is an experiment. I, I, I don't know if you, if you are gardeners, you must, you must understand what they say. We all try, I mean, we love plants, and we sort of like to torture them. I mean, <laughs> I mean no, not to torture them, really, but we like to try and to make them do something we are not sure they can do. I mean, this is a poor rose. She's not a climber at all, but I want to transform her into a climber. I, I imagine here you, you, you must be good at growing hyperastrum, because the climate is very much one for, for those, no? Do you grow them? Yeah. And in Morocco, it's interesting because the, if, if you go and, and buy them in nurseries, they call that sort of plants, they call them baldi. And baldi means wild. And of course, they're not wild because they're cultivars. 
but the cultivars were taken in by the French at the time of the protectorate in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. So I mustn't say that they are the most beautiful things, they're quite vulgar. I, I love vulgar flowers, I mean, I adore vulgar flowers. And I hate elegant flowers. I hate white gardens, I hate pink gardens, I hate everything was fashionable in garden. And I like strong colors, I like orange, pink stripes, I like all that. And this is a rose, I was talking to a charming rose lady before, and I was saying the hybrids of Rosa Gigante, and this is uh, uh, the rose I was mentioning, made in France in the, um, in the early 20th century, n late 19th century. It's called Maréchal. Anyway, you see how vigorous it is. The flowers are simple, but it gets enormous. It's, it's a southern Himalayan rose, so she, she's not scared of the heat. The foliage is very beautiful, the leaves are beautiful. She's called not Maréchal La Tourette, Maréchal... Well, anyway, I can't remember anything, so it's quite pointless. This is... Um, I love... I hated them when I was a kid, because, you know, I'm born in Italy, so I, I, I had this snobbery of not liking the plants I was used to see to every gas station or to every sort of... that sort of thing. And then I discovered that oleanders are amongst the most generous, fantastic plants. And in France, there's a man called Olivier Philippi, who lives uh, in Camargue, and he has a Collection Nationale de Laurier Rose. And, um, and of course, Laurier Rose, there are only three species. One is the Mediterranean one, one I think is from Yemen, and one from Saudi Arabia, and they look exactly the same. They're just pink and simple and with no smell. But all the hybrids and all the cultivars are so spectacular. And in Italy, we call this color Pompeian red, because from the walls of Pompeii, who were most of the time had a background painted in this red. And I think it's a fabulous color. This is our triumph. This is Iris Tingitana. Tangier was, the, the reason why Stefan and myself bought originally bought a place in Tangier is that we were escaping Marrakesh, because we were staying at some very social people, and they had like 10 parties a day, and we couldn't face it anymore. So <laughs> we just waited for them to go out one day. We rented the cheapest car we could find. We looked at the map and we said, what the further place in, in Morocco from Marrakesh? We say Tangier. So we drove to Tangier. <laughs> this is the truth. And, and driving to Tangier, we got lost. And instead of getting to town, we took, we took, a, we took a ride, we were pissed. And we found ourselves surrounded by actors and actors of those gentlemen. And it was amazing. I mean, I remember we went out of the car, we started doing, how do you say Capriola, you know, when you go on your head? And yeah, that. And we said, no, we are the happier people on the world and we want to come and live here. And we did it. But then what has happened that they've started building where our friends were. So we were so sad because they look like young dancing warriors, you know, with helmets, with, with blue feathers, and with the swords going with the wind. I mean, I am mad for them. I really adore them. So I thought in Ruhuna, we have to bring as many as we can. And it's what we do. And, and huge, huge amount of bulbs we transport. And, and Tangier was celebrating for like one or two months a year, like a big iris party, because irises were everywhere. They were in the restaurants, on the restaurant tables, and behind the ear of people, in the mouth of people, in the hands of children. 
they were in, in, in the windows of shops, they were in the cars next to the little plastic Koran. They were, I don't know, imagine in everywhere, everywhere. And now they're not there anymore. So it's so sad. And so it was like a town celebrating a big, big party for one flower for one or two months, finished. Luckily, we have, we have that in Rouen again. And you see, it's exactly the same feeling we had long ago, nearly 40 years ago, to see the ocean through the irises. For me, that's northern Morocco. That's the secret of Tangier. And there's something, I mean, so important to... Be, it's quite unique, I mean, I think. Can we have another picture? You see, you see how you can have two, three flowers coming from the same stem. Look how... How, how, I don't know, how brave, how, how, and you can in summer there's nothing, it completely dries out, it's just, it just solid, it's just mud, dry mud, as solid as rock. And then with the first rain, the Xifion, of course, has all, all, nearly all Moroccan irises are bulbous irises, so and, and then look at them. Next. This is the only Moroccan iris not being a Xiphion, but being a Juno. So a rhizome with, with many, many sections. And it's iris planifolia, which is not, of course, unique of Morocco, because we have it also in Sicily, for, for instance. But next to Runa, there's a place called Lixus, which is the ruin, which are the ruin of a Roman town. And there was the biggest colony of iris planifolia I have ever seen, maybe existing in the world. And of course, as are white flowers are, um, I don't know why, but they, are, they appeal, they call for the destruction. So exactly there, they've decided to make a huge pole, um, golf field, three hotels, villas, and, and things. And, and those irises went. Here, this is the most heraldic and beautiful look at the same flower seen from two different uh, against the sun and with the sun here and it's here is filifolia which is almost purple and uh, this exists little little colonies in in um, in andalusia in southern andalusia and then there the, we have few hundreds in luna rescued of course from where from the where they build a new highway just again where the good flowers are the disaster must happen. It's always like this. And then a field of Gladiolus communis. And then this is an interesting picture made by the excellent Nock, because I haven't mentioned yet Nock. And in fact, I should have talked only about how wonderful Nock is and how wonderful her pictures are. And thanking her, because if this book exists, it's because of her. But look how clever she has been, because we, we are in front of a flower, which is in both cases, it's called gladiolus, gladiolus communis. But in one case, in that case, is communis communis. And communis communis is that tall, is like a peasant in a good mood who likes to speak away, to talk away with his friends and to, to have a drink and to have a chat and to, and to look in different directions. And his cousin, Communis subspecies Byzantinum, you see, is very tall, very solitary, is an aristocrat who doesn't like to talk to anybody, <laughs> a terrible snob, and it's unbelievable. If you think, now, we are talking about the same flower, the same, uh, two different subspecies, how different the character is. 
I think it's fascinating, that thing. And it's fascinating to think that those flowers have been out there for three or four millions years, and, and, and that some idiotic man arriving 10 years ago thinks he has a right to kill them. The most properly name of all daffodils, called Narcissus elegans. Look, isn't he elegant, the little boy? This paper white, common, but nice to have millions of them around. I mean, nice smell. And these two, two very interesting things. And uh, this is the green Narcissus, which is a native of northern Morocco, Narcissus viridiflorus. It's a junkil. You see how strange it is. And when in grass, you can't almost see it because the color is exactly the color of grass. But then if you walk like a dog, you smell it. <laughs> and no, 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 back, back, back. And this is the rarest and most ancient of all Moroccan Narcissus. It's a Narcissus without any trump trumpet, you say? And it's called Narcissus Cavanilesi. Uh, we, we know it's Narcissus because of DNA, because um, in the old days, it, it was the only plant of a genus called Tepeyanthus. It was called Tepeyanthus minor. And now we know it's a Narcissus. And uh, I would love to finish, because it's the last one I found. I found it, in fact, only 14 months ago. I was looking for it for like 20 years. And um, they were widening a road, and there were lots of Narcissus elegans, and the peasants rang us. Now with the mobile, it's easy. So we take the Jeep we, with the chaps, we run there. And I remember it was a marsh, and I saw it's a very, very small flower. But I mean, I was so happy to have found it. I mean, it was really one of the best days in my life. I planted lots of plants who wanted the sun, but knowing that acacia was going and die after 12, 12 14 years. And, um, and I'm so glad I did, because now the earth was very poor sand, is very rich. The acacias are not that anim there anymore. The euphobias are enormous. The arcontophenics that they look like small ferns are becoming huge palm trees. You know, of course, you know about gardeners, no? They always say, oh, you should have come a week ago, or you should come <laughs> in a week. And, and this is exactly, I'm doing exactly the same thing, because you just see some awful <laughs> euphobias, some dying mimosa and some little ferns and they pretend they are acontophenix. But believe me, please, when you'll come to the Hula, I hope very soon, you will see that I'm not lying to you. Yeah, absolutely. You can visit my garden because it's open to the public. Um, I charge 30 euros per, per person to, to visit it. And because we use the money, I, I want your money for my village. I'm very happy to show you my beautiful wild plants and my simple garden. And I'm very happy to put into our treasure, into our box, your $30. $30. So you're welcome whenever you want. The creative ways that Umberto and Stefan are employing or providing for the entire village around them are endlessly inspiring. I plan on visiting Morocco soon to support their efforts. Because we have asked the grandmothers in the village to talk the, the, the girls how to make the dolls they were playing with before the plastic arrived. And the, the girls, Fatma Zora, his daughter, one of them, started making these beautiful, beautiful dolls who are identical 
to the ones in the collection of Musée du Quai Branly in Paris. So they look like old Berber's dolls. They're just done with a cane of Arundo Donuts and a little bit of fabric wrapped around them. And we do exhibitions with those dolls, as we do with the toys made by the boys, and we sell them. And with the money, half of the money is given to them, so they go to school, they buy warm clothes for winter, they buy the books and so on. And part is kept by us, and with this money we manage and clean the village, clean the valley. Uh, there's not one fragment of plastic in our village anymore. Uh, we buy uh, a cow and two sheep to the poorest family. We have managed already with 17 families, and we are left with 10 families to, to help. Uh, we, we are in charge of chirurgical operation for the poor people. I mean, we try to do our best. And, and the little girls, I mean, his daughter Fatma Zora is one of the big sources of income of our association. Umberto admits that it's not easy to forge relationships with his village, but they eventually open their arms to him, so much so that one woman in the village even left him a child. This was a, the, the, the best part of the story, because at the beginning, you know, in, in that place, you have to think that Morocco is the biggest producer of hashish in the world. And all the hashish produced on the mountains of Morocco goes illegally out from Ruhuna. So I don't know why, but I just choose the place where all the drug dealers uh, all the So at the beginning, when the chap saw me living there in a hut, they thought this is a big Italian mafioso drug dealer. And they were saying, why you are here? And they were saying, for making a garden. And no one <laughs> believed me. But, but then the, the fact they thought I was so mad, little by little, it, a friendship was born, little by little, between my eccentricity and the fact that they were there isolated and for the first time they saw somebody who was not there for making money with smuggling drugs, or but for staying with them, having fun with them. When we beat the house, we were all sleeping together under a little tent. It was icily cold at night. And, 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 and then, very important, I, I was alone there and I depended on them, so they had to feed me they had to give me blankets. They had, I was completely in their hands, you see. I, I had nothing for protecting myself. I was their guest. And the fact that I had to learn Arabic through them, because after 10 years in Tangier, I could speak very few words. But they were not enough for leaving, for eating, for asking things. For, for And I think all that, the fact that I arrived there so weak, so modest, and that they were in charge, helped us building our relationship. And then when they saw that the garden existed, that it was a real thing, and that I was not there for other reason, and that the garden managing change their life on a, better, on a better side, giving them medical assistance, and it was, the friendship was born. I'm not friend, there are people I hate in the village. There are people I have very, very, very bad relationship with. But I have very close friends. I mean, amongst my best friends and amongst the people I really consider family are people living in my village, of course. Uh, yeah, one of the things, one of the first things, uh, one day the mother of, of uh, one of the mothers of the village, Labour, arrived very pompously dressed in my kitchen and said, I have a present for you. And she gave me a child, a 12 years old child. And she ran away. So, you know, it was a difficult present. 
So I made this child study in Tangier, there was a school for street boys, and then in that school they could choose if they wanted to become ironman, carpenter, or base, um, making bread, how do you say in English? Ba ba bakery, bakery. And I suggested Najim to become, to become a carpenter, and I promised him that after school, five years, six years after when, when he had finished, that we were doing a company together, and, uh, and so we did, and, and uh, I, did, I designed some furniture from him, for him, and, and then we, we have a beautiful house in Tangier, beautiful house, and we made the whole house empty, we just put this furniture all over the place, we asked all the foreigners, snob foreigners living in Tangier, and we sold like the first night 400 pieces of furniture. So we were into business. And now five boys who are married, have children, they live out of this business, and it's, it's wonderful. It's one of the main income for the village. That's it. Yeah, it's called Now on the Ocean. Look on internet, uh, there's a telephone number, you can order as many as you want, <laughs> yeah. and we will deliver them. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. I really enjoyed being with you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of What We Wore. I hope that you feel as inspired as I do to create something beautiful that you believe in, whatever that means to you. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. What We Wore is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.